Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. Okay, guys, today we are going to talk about uh, the 60-40 stock bond portfolio. Um, kind of, I think the way we're going to deck it up is, you know, we'll talk about the strategy over the last 30 or 40 years, what was the big driver of returns during that period, maybe what has changed over the last few years in terms of the overall backdrop. Um, you know, we certainly are seeing higher inflation than we've seen at least over historically over the last 30 or 40 years, although it's starting to come down a little bit. Um, and just how investors might want to think about alternatives to the 60-40 and different types of strategies or components that might come in. I think when we talk about these different components, obviously we're getting away from a very simple 60-40 stock bond portfolio when you're introducing other asset classes or other strategies. Um, but these are things that you know we're looking at as a firm, we're considering, and just ideas for investors that want to kind of move beyond the traditional stock and bond portfolio into some of these other uh, areas of the market. So I think the first thing we wanted to talk about was, let's just talk about the 60-40. And you kind of can start it in the early 80s in terms of what the setup was with valuations and interest rates and what the performance of the 60-40 was from 1980 through the end of, let's say, 2022. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, you had really high rates coming into this 30 or 40 year period um, and, you know, valuations were nothing like they look now. And so w- what's happened is you've gotten really, really good returns. Like if you look historically at like 30, 40 year periods with the 60, 40 portfolio, what you've gotten in the past 30 or 40 years is, is like at the absolute top. It's, it's you know, you, you probably wouldn't expect to ever get anything better than that. Um, and so what that's led people to say is, all right, you'll see this all, all over the place right now is this whole idea that the 60, 40 is dead or it doesn't work anymore. Because we've gotten these great returns in the past, we don't expect to get them in the future. You know, how do investors think about that? And so I, I think the first thing to think about here is why are people talk all the time, like the returns of the 60-40 are going to be much lower in the future than they've been in the past. You know, why is that? Why, why are people saying that? Um, and there's a couple of concepts I think that are important to understand with that. One is this idea of realized versus expected returns. And so, you know, those of us that are in the quant space always talk about this idea of expected returns. What are my expected returns in the future? And then realize returns are obviously the returns I've achieved in the past. Well, if you assume I'm going to get a certain rate of return over a really long period from stocks and bonds, there's this push and pull between those two things. So as I realize more returns in the present, my expected returns are lower in the future and vice versa. And so we've had realized returns of the 60-40 that are the best in history. So if you think about it in that framework, my expected returns are probably, you know, not just not what they were in the past 30 or 40 years, but they're probably below average going forward. So I think that's one that's one way to look at it. And the other way to look at it is kind of, you know, based on bond yields and valuations. So 
if you look at stocks and you say, how do I try to predict like the returns of say seven plus years of stocks in the future? One way you can do that. First of all, you can't do that. No matter what you do, it doesn't work. But the best way you can do it is, is maybe to look at valuations. And when valuations are very high with stocks, expected future returns are lower and, and vice versa. And right now, you know, if you use CAPE or if you use any of these other metrics, you, ha you have above average valuations. And with bonds, what you find is that the best way to predict that same long-term return is usually just use your starting yield. So whatever that is. So in that case, things have actually gotten a little bit better than they were because before the starting yield was zero. And, you know, now it's whatever it is, four or 5% or whatever it is. So that's actually better. But again, you know, probably not the kind of returns you've gotten in the past 30 or 40 years. So I think that's that sort of lays the groundwork for why people are saying, you know, that the 60-40 may not be as good in the past 30 or 40 years as it's been, or in the next 30 or 40 years as it's been in the past. But I don't know, Matt, if you have anything to add to that. I think, like, whenever we're talking about portfolio construction and diversification, we're talking about zigs and zags, right? We're talking about what goes one way and what goes another way, what those drivers of the zigging or the zagging is and then how they all mix together. And I think we see this everywhere. I think about this a lot in terms of like, I'm starting early with the music reference, so I don't miss it. <laughs> I think a lot about like record labels and how like a record label will have a stable, like a mainstream label, not like some weird indie label with like one, one thing. They'll have like a stable of artists. And what's great is like the period we just came off of, well, a few years ago now before, before bonds yielded zero and bonds did nothing for a while, we came off of this period where like your stocks and your bonds and in a weird way, your cash, like it just all worked. One would zig when another would zag, but everything was generating uh, positive expected values, positive total returns. It was a really great thing. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll invoke like Geffen Records coming into the 90s had Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, they had uh, Nirvana and like they were unstoppable. And so like you hit these periods where the whole portfolio is paying for itself and makes total existence. But then, you know, they add the roots early nineties. I'm listening to a really great roots podcast right now. So lost in this history. Um, but then all of a sudden stuff goes wrong. And this is kind of like when all of a sudden bonds yield zero growth goes to the moon valuations go. It's like, does this make sense anymore? Cause in 94, Kurt Cobain dies and guns and roses are releasing the spaghetti incident. And post Alicia Silverstone, Aerosmith is basically like gone. And we see like this whole label like falls apart. So the 6040 falls to pieces unless you have stuff to drive everything that you just explained. And that's probably why the death of the 6040 and these other conversations we've been having, like they're really relevant because history does this to you every so often. And it happens everywhere if you look around for it. Yeah. And, you know, and I know you agree with me on this, this whole idea that the 60-40 is not dead. And, you know, we went over this in our last podcast, so I won't go into depth about it again. But there's a reason to believe that stocks are going to produce a return over the risk-free rate over the long term. There's a reason to believe bonds are going to do the same thing. So the odds are, if you invest in a stock and bond portfolio for 30 or 40 years, you're probably going to get a pretty good return. It's just not going to be probably the return you got in the past 30 or 40 years. And so that gets into the idea that there, you know, maybe in this type of world where we're not going to get the returns we expect. And also in the type of world where stocks and bonds may be more correlated to each other than they've been over 30 or 40 years, maybe we can do something else keeping our stocks and bonds, or maybe we can do something else to supplement it. And, and that's kind of the idea I think we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And, and we'll get into that, but just to put some numbers behind mm -hmm. this stock and bond expected return uh, projection, you know, Vanguard publishes on a monthly, it's actually based on, it's, based on the most recent quarter, but they publish it monthly, the expected long-term 
returns of a bunch of different asset classes, both stocks and different styles of stocks, and then fixed income. So basically, they're saying with U.S. equities, you know, their return projections are between 4.2 and 6.2 percent, and on the bo- on the aggregate bond side, it's between 4.8 and 5.8 percent. So if you take a 60/40 blend of that, you might be looking at something like you know, let's say somewhere in the low to mid fives in terms of the blended 60-40 type of return. Now, the other thing you have to take into consideration is they're also basically saying that inflation is going to be 2 to 3% over the long term as well. So if you have a 5.5% 60-40 return, but you have inflation at 3%, you know, your real return is only 2.5%. Um, and that's a big difference than what investors had gotten, you know, previously when the 60-40 prior to 2022 had returned something like 9% annually. And, you know, we were in like a 1% to 2% inflation type world. You know, the real return for investors was much higher. So that's just, these are some numbers to put this in context about why things like this are, I think, important. Yeah. And, you know, and Vanguard is known for having some of the most optimistic uh, expected return numbers. You know, if you go to, and, and one of the things, like I said before, expected returns are a very, very inexact in science. Um, you know, I think Dan, Dan Villalon, when he was on the podcast said something like valuation is the, uh, you know, the best way to the, it's the best of the worst ways or something like that to set expected returns. Like it's, it's okay, but it, it's not really that accurate. And if you looked at like some other firms, I think research affiliates and some other firms that do it, you're actually going to see worse expected returns than what Vanguard came up with. And all these things, the like the capital market assumptions, which is usually where expected returns end up because it says here are your expected returns. Here are the correlations between these return generator streams, whatever you want to call them. Like this is a big deal. And when inflation comes up and yields haven't caught up yet and whatever else, this is why a few years ago we got into the death of the 60-40 conversation and all this stuff started being such a pressing matter because all of a sudden all that stuff starts to go out the window. When all that stuff starts to go out the window, then like the narrative feels like it's changing under all of our feet. And we start to have conversations like this one, which are really important because they make us test these assumptions because, well, I don't know the future. Maybe, uh, Justin, you know the future, don't you? I have my crystal ball right here. We're going to find out in our market forecasting episode. (laughs) We're going to do in a couple weeks here, Justin. We're going to find out what you know about the future. Okay, I like it. But let's, let's say we want it to stick. We want to keep it simple. And we want to stick with our stocks and bonds. What type of things could we do in equities that might help bump up the uh, you know possible returns over time? Yeah, well, first of all, I still think like sticking with like index funds on both sides is, is an okay solution. Um, you know, as long as you understand, you know, the returns are probably not going to be as good as they were in the past. You know, with inflation, there's going to be periods where stocks and bonds are correlated. If you're the person who can just stay the course. Who doesn't really care about that stuff? I mean, it's not a bad solution to stay in the index funds, the stocks and bonds. So I think that's one. And then the other thing is like the types of stuff we do, you know, when you look at value stocks right now, they're exceptionally cheap historically. Um, you know, again, we've been saying that for a long time. A lot of other people have been saying that for a long time and that, that you know, hasn't been realized in the market, but they are. And so that's another way. Those types of things are things you can do to increase your expected return. So if, if value stocks have a much better expected return than the market as a whole, I could add some exposure to value stocks. I can still be in just stocks and bonds, but I can add some exposure to value stocks and that gets my expected return up a little bit. Or international stocks is another example. You know, they have much better expected returns than US. So, you know, somebody who's 100% in the US and has benefited from that, 
maybe now is the time to put a little bit of international. So there are some stuff, some things like that you can do around the edges that at least make the return a little, have the potential to make the return a little bit better if you're just going to stick with stocks and bonds. And I think as allocators, that exercise of pretty much, and if, if you work with anybody who does any type of allocation in any type of like rigorous way or cares at all about the quantitative side of things, they have this list of capital market assumptions they're going to put together or gather from various sources and then say, okay, I maybe can't get my 10% expected return or 5% or whatever it is next year from just US large cap equities. What are the other things that I care about that are baked into my assumptions that I can reconfigure that this? And it might be tilting towards value. It might be tilting towards small. It might be tilting towards international. Lots of ways to reconfigure it when you have all of those assumptions on the table in front of you. Yeah, and the only other thing to, to keep in mind with those types of things is when you look different in the market, it's always a risk. And so if seven years ago, right. I, we had had this discussion and we had said, all right, let's tilt towards value because value is really cheap because I need to increase my expected returns. Well, I decreased my realized returns by doing it. it. It didn't work. And so that's just important to keep in mind. If you're a person who can't deal with that type of thing, if you can't look different in the market, if you don't understand the risks that nothing is 100% in the market, like the, then these types of things are probably not a great idea. Going back to what I said before, which is index funds is actually a great solution for a lot of people. One of the things that uh, a lot of the guests that we've had on sh uh, excess returns where they, we've done the show us your portfolio episodes is just talking about, you know, making portfolios more diversified with different streams of possible returns from different asset classes or, or strategies. So on the asset class side, let's just talk about some of the other alternatives that an investor could consider and maybe some of the pluses and minuses of these. So we're getting, we're, you know, going beyond the 60-40 now and we're starting to introduce other things. And some, some of these things have characteristics, as we'll talk about, that can be good in certain market environments, but they can also be a drag, going back to the point you made, Jack, before about sort of looking different than the, than the market. Anytime you're introducing this stuff, you know, there's a risk of, of that, so... Um, yeah, let's work through some of these asset classes. And uh, so starting with commodities. Yeah, well, first, back to your point about show us your portfolio. I feel like we haven't done justice to like stocks and bonds and those things because everybody has practiced one of these portfolios that has, you know, a lot of things beyond stocks and bonds. I mean, I think Rick Ferry, I don't know if you remember any others, Justin, I think Rick Ferry, maybe Daniel Crosby, like have been the only people that actually have stock and bond portfolios. Everybody else has something along the lines that we're going to talk about. So we need to do a better job of like finding people who have these traditional portfolios. But, but to your question about commodities, yeah, I mean, commodities are definitely in an inflationary environment are, are probably the best diversifier of stocks and bonds. The problem is commodities can also be just horrendous for extremely long periods of time. I mean, we just came out, they, they talk about this idea of a super cycle, you know, working in both directions. We just came out of a period before this inflation where commodities were awful for a really, really long period of time. And so if you just and if you say I've got stocks and bonds and I'm just going to, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to add long only commodity exposure to my stock and bond portfolio. It's going to help you when, when we have periods of inflation, but over the long term, it's probably going to hurt you. And also there's going to be just extended periods where you're just going to be sitting there beating yourself. Like, why do I own these commodities? Because they're doing nothing but having, but dragging down my portfolio. Do you feel like there's that many people left who still do like have allocations to pure long only commodities? I, I've, I've heard lots of stories, mostly horror stories from people in like the post-financial crisis, you got the bounce back. And then it was just to your value point earlier, just years and years of pain. 
I, do you do you see many allocations with pure long only commodities? I think the evidence is so strong that you know you got to use trend because right. of the point of the super cycle. So you know the long only if they do, it might be like somebody bought commodities and just kind of left it there and forgot about it. And that's not you know I'm talking about more individual investors, not necessarily professionals that are you know actively managing allocations and strategies. I don't know, Jack. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, actually, you see gold a little bit more, which I think we're going to talk about less or next. You see that a little bit more in a long only thing because you see people like permanent portfolio yeah. type stuff. But yeah, like I, to be honest, I don't, I don't know of any people that have like just long only exposure to commodities that they never touch, that they never look at. Like there's always some sort of trigger as to when I'm in the commodities or when I'm not in the commodities. For the reason I said, like it, it can be brutal. I mean, if you go look at the returns of commodities prior to this inflation for like decade, it was awful. Um, it was really bad. So, you know, and that's very hard for people to stick to. And it's also really hard when they're judging themselves against a portfolio of stocks and bonds that's doing really well. Because like, if you add a diversifier, you, you want to see the results at some point from that diversifier. And if it goes year after year after year where it's not helping you, you're going to abandon the diversifier and you're probably going to abandon it, you know, at a time where maybe the diversifier is something you need. I think the whole idea, I can't remember which episode we talked about this in, but uh, it's like the trading strategy mindset versus pure asset class mindset on some of this stuff just becomes really, really important. So whether that's with the gold allocation or especially if it's with a commodity allocation, like a pure long only with no trend overlay or something else, that gets pretty risky really fast because mm -hmm. of the volatility and drawdowns being as pronounced as they are. Now, gold is kind of interesting because you have, I feel like there's two different camps. One for gold and one against gold. Like the, the critics would say, you know, there's no cash flow stream, which is, this is like what Buffett says, you know, he, he would never buy gold because there's no cash flow stream that kicks off of it. So, you know, that you, he's looking for cash generating, you know, profitable companies that, uh, you know, have earnings power basically. Um, whereas the other side, people that, that buy gold, you know, they view it as a store of value as an inflation hedge and, you know, a lot of advisors might say, you know, something like five to 7% of your portfolio in gold can help, particularly during times of high inflation. Although I don't think it's a guarantee that it's going to be a hedge against inflation, but it's oftentimes looked at that. So I don't know, Matt, what do you, how do you view sort of gold allocation? Gold is one of those things. If, if you believe in gold, if gold is part of the thing that you tell yourself is like important, then you want to ration in what part of the portfolio, like what risks do it does it offset? If you don't dogmatically believe in gold, and look, it, it serves it serves a point in a portfolio if you want it to serve a point. But I don't think it's like a critical thing that everybody needs to have. It's not stocks, it's not bonds, it's not cash, it's 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 a rock and it's shiny, and therefore it has some value, but I don't think you have to plan for it in a portfolio. Um, can't carve out the space though. And nothing wrong with lots of clients who have a space carved out for this thing. Probably the red flags are like, I, I having like a 25% gold allocation would probably be a little, a little dicey. <laughs> what I really like about gold is it can easily be buried in my backyard for the coming Armageddon. Um, so <laughs> I gotta be ready. You know, I don't know if you guys, I, I posted that thing on Twitter the other day with the guy that just posts like fire covers constantly for his YouTube videos about the world's going to end. So if, if we go that direction, um, gold is going to be really a really important part of what we're doing. I think I saw one of my favorite retorts to that, but 
somebody had put like, if you show up at my house, like post Armageddon with your bar of gold, I will not trade my food for you with it. <laughs> but the, the other thing with gold is it doesn't, it's not a reliable inflation hedge. And that can be somewhat of a problem. Like they call they talk about like the gold smile, but the thing is like gold can be really great, like an extreme deflation, like think 2008. Gold can also be great in extreme inflation, but like it wasn't, you know, with this kind of calm inflation type thing, it's doing well now, but it wasn't a great hedge for, for that type of thing. So like, if you want the clear, I think inflation's coming, I want the clear hedge, commodities are a much better hedge than gold is. Um, and we'll talk about the, with the permanent portfolio, gold actually can have a, you know, a good value to something like that. But I think that's one of the problems with gold is like, some people want something to work in a very specific type of scenario to say like, I want this to work in, in all inflationary environments and gold doesn't really do a great job of that. I think uh, the 314 research guys do a really, really great job of talking through some of this stuff. And I think part of it's because who the owner base is in gold. And gold is one of those quirky things where you have the doomer gold bugs, you have central banks, you have government entities, you have, you have a very interesting like base of the owners and holders of gold. And that makes some of the trading decisions interesting. And usually when people are talking about gold as an inflation hedge or something else, I go and I walk them through gold price trading through like 2008, nine in the financial crisis. And it's like gold becomes a correlated asset at certain points. And it's probably because people have to sell off pieces to do other things at different points in time. And that's where it's without a clear driver of return, without some type of trend or other overlay, it's dogmatically, if you want to have it as a piece of your portfolio, great, no problem, build everything else around it. But just as like a standalone long only asset class, I'm hard pressed to be convinced that's a smart thing to do. I, th I think that is an excellent point. And that's trying, you know, in anything you're investing in, it's trying to go back to like the first principle, what is the driver of the returns? And if it's, you know, if it's not super clear or if it's, you know, speculative in nature or, you know, then yeah, it's just, it's investors should be doing more of that. And that's, an, I think a very, very fair and good, good point, man. Back to that idea, no markets without marketing. So who's buying and who's selling, when and why? And you want to walk through that for each of these things. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty easy conversation to have when we talk about stocks and bonds. As we get into these other things, we get into more fringe cases of who's buying, how, when, and why. And is there leverage involved? Is there whatever else involved in these decisions? And that's where people like, why it was so good to have the 314 guys on for that episode they help think through this thing. Like what are these underlying narratives, especially as we get into some of these fringe trading strategies and asset classes? One of the unique things about last year was you had both stocks and bonds decline at the same time. You know, usually they're more uncorrelated with each other. So bonds end up being a diversifier, but in years like 2022, when that doesn't happen, um, you know, it can be really painful. And that's part of the reason why I think we're having this discussion today. But one of the uh, strategies or types of assets that did really well last year was uh, managed futures strategy. So we just want to kind of quickly talk about, I guess, what a managed future strategy is, and then talk about some of the return characteristics of, of that. Yeah. And, you know, this is not technically an asset class like commodities and gold, but it's something that people follow, you know, that, that can be very beneficial, like during times like that. And the idea of managed futures is very simple. You're, you're just long and short a bunch of different things. At, at all times, basically, and you're typically using trend, momentum, that type of thing to, to do that. And so what happens is you get a very, like you, you get a pretty much an absolute return type profile. 
So you get a thing where, you know, you're, you're usually not down a lot because you're always long and you're always short different things. So you usually don't have massive drawdowns. You usually get fairly consistent positive returns over time. And you usually get the best returns when the market's down. So those two things together actually make that a great diversifying asset. If, if it's not down a lot when stocks and bonds are down, and it's actually up a lot of the time when stocks and bonds are down, like that consistency plus that drawdown protection can make it a really good asset. You know, if you're just using like a formula to say, do I want this in a portfolio of stocks and bonds? It can be a great addition to a portfolio of stocks and bonds. Now, the downside is what we've talked about before, which is managed futures look very different than stocks and bonds. And just like commodities had a long period where they didn't work, managed futures also had a long period where they didn't work before this recent period. And so it wasn't like they didn't work. They were losing tons of money, but they didn't work like they weren't up nearly as much as stocks and bonds. And so it, it, again, it becomes a behavioral thing if you're going to introduce managed futures to your portfolio. And, and that is easier to do now than it used to be because there are a bunch of ETFs that practice managed future strategies and that didn't exist before. So this can be done a lot easier than it used to be, but you, ha you can't be the person who's going to benchmark everything against the S&P 500 or against the 60-40 portfolio because this is going to look very different and there's going to be times that's really good for you and there's going to be times that's really bad. I think it's worth saying too, like with when we talk about managed futures and we talk about other other trading strategies that do this type of stuff, like this is a great way in your alternative sleeve, you can have stock and bond and commodity and other and interest rate exposure expressed in these ways with this trend overlay. And that's why they're different. It's not a long only stock strategy. It's not a long only bond strategy. It might be long short across these asset classes, but this can also be a great way to get that gold and commodity and other exposure allocation into your portfolio. Goes back to, you know, Cliff Asnes and those guys too. Like they wrote that paper, value and momentum everywhere. Like you can look at all these types of overlay strategies and use this as ways to get less traditional assets and other stuff into your portfolio. And that's really, really useful in the portfolio construction landscape, I think too. Just one, I guess, point on that. You know, I think for investors, and you made me think of this with when you said that there are there are alternative sleeve of the, their portfolio. You know, I think investors would benefit from kind of if they have an alternative sleeve, have almost having that separate, so you can see in isolation like how those strategies that's very different than the sixty forty. You know how they do in different market environments. It, it's more of a, like a positioning thing, like in terms of how you're presenting it to an investor, how an investor is actually deploying it in their own account so that it's carved out, it's separate. So in a year like 2022, you know, clearly I see the benefit of this. It's not mixed in with everything else. Um, you know, and, some, and sometimes like everything's just clumped together. So an investor can't really isolate where the return drivers are coming from. But in this case, like I think as you're thinking about some of these things and some of these strategies that we're going to talk about here in a minute, sort of having those almost off to the side in that alternative sleeve, whatever percentage of your portfolio you're allocating to so that you can track it and see it clearly. I don't know that's if you guys a, have thoughts on that. That's something I want to ask Matt, because I think there's both sides to that. Like, I agree with you. I, I can see how you want to see a sleeve like that and you want to see how it performs during good times. But they also have this concept of line item risk, which is basically if my overall portfolio does what it's supposed to do, I'm still going to pick the portfolio apart and I'm going to find the things that didn't do well. And I'm going to be like, I got to get rid of that because it would have done even better you know, if, if I had, didn't have that thing. So it's like that balance between you do want to see when you introduce stuff like this, you do want to see the benefit it's having for you. But by the same token, if you look at it as a total portfolio and you don't judge the individual line items, sometimes that better, that's better. So how do you think about that, Matt? Yeah, I think 
I think it's in how you explain it, what role you're asking it to play in the portfolio. And so from a pure client standpoint, so if I'm the person and I'm looking at my accounts, I want to understand not just what the line item is, but what that's a part of. And so if I have something that's say like down 50% or something, but I know that's grouped into my risky or whatever my riskiest part of my allocation is, then I should be able to go like, okay, this is like a dog, but does it still have its place? Uh, remind people all the time of that classic Munger quote, the markets, the stock market's the only store that when everything goes on sale, uh, everybody runs out, something like that. And in your risky allocation bucket, it's okay if you have something that's like a loser, if you think it's coming back and there's a whole rationale and reasons why, that's the line item risk. If however, in like my risk mitigation or hybrid or my my safest assets, I have something that's that's behaving like it's something risky, then it becomes a really useful way to say like, oh, this is a problem. Uh, I'll never forget. I believe it was, it had to be Cohen and Steers, not to throw Cohen and Steers under the bus. Cohen and Steers raised a lot of good money for real estate and the run up to the financial crisis. I used to have this saved presentation where they basically said REITs, real estate investment trusts, were basically a uh, like an alternative asset. They shouldn't be thought of as like stocks or bonds. They should be thought of as an alternative and that they were safer than bonds. Mm -hmm. And it was basically like going into like 2007 and 2008, they were like, you should have 25 or like 30% of your portfolio in REITs because they're so safe and they do such wonderful things. And like, obviously that was a fine decision for the five or 10 years leading up to that point. But in that year, you realize, no, this was an incredibly risky asset class. And if you were thinking about this as like a risk mitigator or a risk-free thing, like it's in the wrong place. So line items in context for the risk expectations is a really, really critical part for us as advisors to get across to clients. And also for clients when they're looking at their stuff to understand what level of risk does each of these line items or strategies nest into. Does that answer the question, Jack? Yeah, no, definitely. That, that was great. Let's talk through some of the uh, additional strategies that can be made by incorporating stocks and bonds in some of these other alternative asset classes. And we run a few of these, um, and there's one that is pretty well known. It's it's called the permanent portfolio, which basically holds 25% in stocks, 25% in long-term bonds, 25% in short-term bonds, and 25% in gold. And the idea there is that, and this was developed by Harry Brown, I think he wrote a book in the mid-70s, and it's you know a strategy, each one of those asset classes should perform well in different types of economic environments, whether you have recession or expansion in different types of inflationary environments inflation or deflation. So you're really trying just to make a very simple portfolio, hold those four asset classes, you know, on an annual basis, rebalance, possibly back to equal weight. Um, and, you know, over time, something like that, you know, it does a good, relatively good job of producing, you know, positive returns, um, not huge drawdowns. And um, yeah, and then you have other things like the all weather portfolio that introduce other other asset classes. And that kind of comes out of Bridgewater and Ray Dalio and a number of other firms sort of have taken that. But do you guys have any um, 
additional thoughts on, on, on those? Yeah. I mean, this, this is the challenge of the whole thing is like we talked about, well, you, you could incorporate things other than stocks and bonds in your portfolio, but how do you do it? And, and there's so many different ways, like starting with simple, going to complex. And what, like what you said is simple. Permanent portfolio, you know, there's four different quadrants of like economic type situations we could have, have one asset that does well in each quadrant, you know, just buy those four. That's it. Like rebalance it periodically. You're done. It, it's an interesting portfolio. And the, the best the best attributes of it is the returns are very consistent. Like the, the drawdown profile relative to a 60-40 portfolio, I guess the returns aren't consistent, but the drawdowns are not huge. So you always have something that's doing pretty well. So I think the permanent portfolio actually just went through maybe one of its, if, if not its biggest drawdown ever, one of its biggest drawdowns ever in 2022. But still, like the, the drawdown was not as much as, as like a 60-40 type portfolio. So it, that's the advantage of it. It's very simple. It, it has limited drawdowns. You know, on, on the downside, like I wouldn't expect that you know, to have, like, if I have a portfolio that's weighted to stocks over bonds that has a bond supplement to the stocks, I would expect that portfolio, at least over like a hundred years to do better than the permanent portfolio um, would be my guess. So you're probably giving up some return for, for that consistency you're getting. And, you know, all weather is the same type of thing. All weather has a commodity sleeve in there. Um, it doesn't have just a pure gold sleeve. It has, it has commodities as well. But these, these are examples of like a simple way to build a portfolio that's very, you know, that does a good job of managing drawdowns and that does a good job of producing more consistent returns over time than something like stocks and bonds would do. I think it's worth mentioning a huge driver of the return or the, the lesser drawdowns is just a lesser allocation to risk. Mm -hmm. Compare sure. the 25, 25, 25 allocation. And it's like, oh, well, look at how much less the drawdowns are to the 60, 40 portfolio. It's like, yeah, well, obviously like 25% stock versus 60. <laughs> Right. I mean, come on here. Yeah. And 25% in either cash or short-term bonds. So uh, obviously that, that contributes to that as well. Yeah. It's going to contribute. And again, it, it looks great on paper and there's nothing wrong with doing it. If you believe in this type of thing, it's at least you're, you're investing in things that have a demonstrable, like positive expected future value. Mm -hmm. um, but it looks great on paper and that exposes you to risks and not to, not to like, <laughs> I promise not to derail us with this point, but it's like, like, Geffen Records, four artists in 1994. And it's like, you had the great classic rock band in Aerosmith. You had the 80s rock band in Guns N' Roses. You had the modern rock band in Nirvana. And you had that fresh shining, the rap band, The Roots. And like, what happens? Like, Aerosmith basically was living on an edge until they jump off it. Guns N' Roses never gets over the spaghetti incident and the use your illusion thing. So they just fall off the face of the earth. And Kurt Cobain dies. And this is before the roots even get a, like a shot at a hit. And the whole thing falls to pieces just because once in a while, you're going to get an otherworldly shock. And that's kind of what I feel like the permanent portfolio and some of these things have gone through in the last few years. Nothing is perfect. Nothing's immune from this stuff and getting surprised. And the, the biggest thing with all this stuff we're talking about is do something consistently. Like one of the things, the permanent portfolio, there's a mutual fund called the permanent portfolio mutual fund. And one of the things it's famous for is in 2009, it had massive inflows. Like people were just pouring money into this thing at the exact wrong time because it had a great, I think it was up in 2008, the permanent portfolio. I don't think it was down at all. I think it had a positive return. Um, Short-term bonds, long-term bonds and the commodity. Yeah, gold. And like, I think it actually, yeah, I think it was actually up. And so, but, so up. that's the problem is like you, if you want to do something like this, it's great. But you've got to do it consistently. You've got to do it during the bull markets where stocks and bonds are making this thing look bad. And you've got to do it in the bear markets where you're looking good relative to stocks and bonds. Like you have to deploy a consistent strategy. And that's the big thing that gets people with this is it's like, oh, we've seen inflation. Let's go get the permanent portfolio. Let's invest in this. And then as soon as we have a couple of years where inflation comes way back down, it's like, all right, now I need stocks and bonds again. I don't need this permanent portfolio. And 
Like the consistency is the most important thing with most of this stuff. It all goes back to the behavioral belief in the thing you're doing. Like the best strategy for you is the one you can stick to. And that means it's the strategy that you believe in. So if you believe in the por the permanent for portfolio through thick and thin and can weather the lagging in the uptime and the modest outperformance on the downside and the, and the bad times, like then it's right for you. Same with the gold allocation, same with whatever else. If you believe in it and can stick to it over time, great. But if you keep changing your stripes, then you're going to have some real pain at some point in the future. Matt, if you can come up with a musical reference for the next one, which is risk parity, you're going to be my hero. <laughs> Challenge on. Please, Jack, tell us in your definition what risk parity is. Well, all I'm going to do is just steal Adam Butler's uh, definition from when he was on our podcast of risk parity, because I'm certainly not an expert in risk parity, but it's it's, there's two concepts behind risk parity. One is diversification and one is balance. And diversification we've already talked about, which is stocks and bonds can become correlated. You know, people who use risk parity strategies, want to, they want to effectively own, try to own everything. Like if something generates a risk premium over time, if something generates a, you know, a good return over time, they want to own all of it. And then, and then there's the other concept of balance. And this is the big one where risk parity differs, which is the idea that if, if I build a 50-50 stock and bond portfolio, 50% of my money is in stocks and 50% of my money is in bonds. But the, mad, the vast majority of my risk is in stocks. So the risk is not, although the ownership is balanced, the risk is not balanced. Most of the risk is in stocks. And so what risk parity people typically do is they'll use leverage to, e to equate that. So they'll leverage up the bonds to, to have a similar risk profile to the stocks. And they'll do that with all the other asset classes as well. And, and then they'll take the overall portfolio and they'll set that for like a specific type of leverage. Like you'll see them say like 12 vol or something like that. And so, so what they're doing is they're, they're creating this diverse set of asset classes, and then they're scaling up or down the volatility of that overall portfolio to match their profile. So it's a much more diversified, it's a more complex strategy than the ones we just talked about. And it's a much more diversified strategy than a 60-40 portfolio. How'd I do now? I, just, I think that was awesome. It just, I think I got it. Okay. It's in the words, really. Frozen? This was the clue said. the whole time. Um, I think I have the... Justin, you challenged me for the for reference to risk parity. Yeah. I think I, I think I cracked it. I think it's, it's in the word. It was staring right at me the whole time. Risk parity. So like the ultimate risk parity of musical finance has to be Weird Al Yankovic. It's the idea of parody. You only pick hit songs. You basically follow the template of what they promise, but you give them a little tweak, but you're always just re-recording a hit. Like you can't go wrong if you're adjusting your variance to not have losers. Risk parity is just weird Al Yankovic. I think that's what I have to say about that. So let me see. I have it in my head. Um, uh, shoot, wait, wait, wait. I just need the start of it. Well, I eat it. I know eat it. Just eat it. Just eat it. Why? Uh, yeah. Is he still putting stuff out, man? <laughs> yes, yeah, he's still he's still yeah. around doing his thing. But if, something if you, something like, why are you always such a fussy young man? Don't like your Captain Crunch to while your raisin brands. Uh, why? Are, <laughs> something like that's pretty that. good, Justin. Uh, I can. Yeah, that's very good. I'm impressed. <laughs> it was a big thing at one point in history. It was a huge thing at one point in history, as it should be. And now you're going to be torturing me because somebody trying to remember something that. I love that, though. I think yeah, you hit it spot on, that for sure. But this is the thing. It's um, like with risk parity, what you're trying to do is you're trying to limit your downside exposure because it's the variance formula that you're feeding everything through. And that's kind of like the genius of like having an entire music business based on 
parodies of already existing hit songs is you're never doing like your parody might not be as good, but it's still like entertaining. And then once in a while, you still punch up to the upside. Like UHF isn't a blockbuster movie, even though it should be. <laughs> but uh, you get um, you get Amish Paradise and you get uh, White and Nerdy and you get whatever the more modern. I know my more modern Weird Al songs are all still 20 years old. Wasn't there like but, some um, sort of uh, big battle with him and Coolio about Amish Paradise? Coolio didn't like that at all, I don't think, right? I guess Coolio didn't like it at first, but I believe he did come around he to came, it, okay. I want to say, in time. Um, but yeah, but it's it's this idea. If you can just eliminate downside and control for some of that variance, you can risk target a portfolio. Not a bad approach in music or in finance. And another thing that also, we talked about things becoming available via ETFs with managed futures. Another thing that is now available via ETFs. I mean, there, there are now risk parity ETFs. Now, they may not be the guys that are the pure risk parity guys we follow will tell you you probably can't do it as optimally in an ETF as they might do it somewhere else, but they do exist now. These types of products are out there. And what about I know one of the things that, you know, we've had well, we've had Corey Hofstein and, and a couple of the Resolve guys on the podcast, and they they have this return stacking type of strategy that's sort of a blend between risk parity and 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 you know a traditional portfolio, right, Jack? Yeah, this gets back to the idea we talked about before that people have trouble sticking with these things that are very different. So like originally, and it was a wisdom tree ETF that originally came out and now, you know, Corey's launched a bunch of his own ETFs, but using the original one as an example, like if you, if you have a, if you create an ETF that has a one and a half times exposure to a 60-40 portfolio, which is what they did, what I can do is I basically can put 67% of my money in that ETF and I get the same exact return as the 60-40 portfolio. But what's cool about that is now I have a third of my money available to do something else. Now, if the something else I do is buy like tech companies that are losing money, it's a massive, massive problem because now I've introduced leverage and I've introduced risk with the leverage. But if I take that other 33% and I invested in T-bills or, or more importantly, if I invested in uncorrelated strategies to stocks and bonds, I can end up with a more optimal portfolio. So the idea of return stacking was I'm getting my 60-40, so I don't have to worry as much about the behavioral stuff about, like, I'm not I'm tracking completely differently than the 60-40, which is something like risk parity can do. I'm locking in my 60-40, and then I'm putting these other uncorrelated asset classes on top. And, and what that means is basically whatever the return of those other things is, it gets added to my 60-40 or subtracted if it doesn't work. It gets added to my 60-40 return. So I'm not going to have these big deviations from the 60-40. In theory, if I can find something that produces consistent positive returns, I'm going to get that benefit without the sort of the tracking error problems. The brilliance of return stacking, I think, always boils down to the behavioral element. And if that ties back to your behavioral knitting to help you stick to it, it's huge. The first time I heard Corey explain this, it made me think of, so in the financial crisis, I was working with some guys who did a lot of like fixed in like muni bond type business. And so when the world started to get wacky, one of the things was uh, bond yields came down quite a bit, as you remember, in the financial crisis and then the ensuing decade really afterwards. And so one of the things they started doing was they started saying, we have reinvestment risk on the muni bond portfolios that we're running. So now let's start to take like some of those coupons. And what they started to do was they started to buy stuff like Russell 2000 ETFs and other things with it. And I remember thinking like, that's so interesting. These conservative investors would not want to just go out and put a 50% stock allocation on 
but they're totally okay with dollar cost averaging into like a uh, an attractive tax efficient vehicle to basically get exposure to these other returns because it's not messing with the principal in their muni portfolios. So anything you can do to help set up those behavioral guardrails to like take other forms of risk, as long as you can stick to it and don't abandon it at the wrong time. It's it's a genius approach. Yeah, like we've talked about, everything in this business is the return that gets to the investor at the end. And so behavior is a gap between the return of the portfolio and that return that the investor gets. And so it's great to say, like, in theory, risk parity is a better, you know, portfolio. It's a more optimal portfolio than return stacking. And, you know, I think even the guys that run return stack portfolios would say that, but it's not a better portfolio for most people. And so that gap of that person in the middle who has behavioral problems is so important. And this was, this was a really cool idea. And they came up with a really good name for it too, which is so important with these types of things, because when you want to get investors to follow these types of things, kind of having a cool name is really important. But I think this was a really cool, innovative thing in terms of recognizing, you know, people probably can't stick with a pure risk parity portfolio. Let's try to bridge the gap between in the middle. Yeah. As opposed to my normal strategy, which is return snacking, which is like, oh, somebody sent me some pears in the mail for Christmas. And oh, I got this fun bread. What happens if I stack them all together? <laughs> And well, have a delicious that's, treat. That's better than me that somebody just sent me a big bag of Reese's cups. Um, and I've been eating those. At least your pears have Stack some Stack those, those together, benefits. man. Stack those Reese's cups together. Let me tell you, if you haven't had a, have a, made a graham cracker s'more with a Reese's cup in it, don't miss out. So that's, that's return stacking. Yeah, I think that those are, you know, that those are cool strategies. And we hope that Corey and his team over there have, you know, continued success in uh, raising assets for those because those are very interesting. Um, Jack, I know we, we, we run some other risk managed strategies that utilize multiple asset classes, momentum, trend following, correlation. And um, we've talked about those in other podcasts, but we just want to briefly hit on those. So generalized protective momentum and protective asset allocation are two that come to mind. Um, yeah, this gets to the idea we've talked about a lot in the podcast, which is uh, some of these alternative asset classes, you know, you probably don't want to own them all the time. So you want some sort of system to try to figure out like when to invest in them. And momentum is, is what commonly is used. And so these are two, and you know, as quants, we love quantitative strategies. And so these are two quantitative strategies that have been tested over time. And the idea is basically you start with a diverse group of 12 asset classes and you invest in some number of those asset classes based on the ones that have the best momentum. Uh, protective asset allocation invests in six, usually generalized protective momentum invests in three. Um, the, the big difference to, between the two being that one of them uses just pure returns to determine the momentum. The other one uses a score that combines returns with correlation. So with the one that re combined returns with correlation, the idea is I want to not just get the best performing assets, classes that have positive momentum in there, but I also want to get ones that provide di diversification benefit. And so the less correlated you are with the other asset classes, the more diversification benefit you provide. So protective asset allocation is a pure momentum type thing, generalized protective momentum introduces this correlation thing. And then the other thing they both have in common is when a lot of these asset classes are all in a downtrend together, if you see a huge portion of them going down, what it does is it just puts the portfolio in cash. And it just says, we're in some sort of risk-off event. We're going to either hold, in the risk-off event, we're either going to hold intermediate-term bonds or short-term bonds, but we're not going to hold the risk assets. We're going to wait till that momentum establishes in, in multiple asset classes in a positive way again, and then we're going to invest again. And, and the cool thing about this is you know, it does a very good job, you know, relative to a 60-40 portfolio of managing drawdowns. Because you have these multiple asset classes, because you have that crash protection built in there, it does a pretty good job. Like if, if you look at the long-term maximum drawdowns of these types of portfolios, they're a lot less than, you know, your 60-40 portfolio. 
The downside is, you know, what we're seeing this year with these things is, you know, that they are, they can get sometimes when momentum is changing in the market, they can get caught up, you know, caught up in that. If, if you have a huge risk on rally, you know, they're going to be obviously much less exposed to risk assets. You know, they're going to have a diversified group of risk assets. So they're going to be much less exposed. So you're going to underperform and that type of thing. And then, and then the other downside can be taxes, you know, in taxable accounts, any of these types of things that are rotating around based on momentum can, you know, somewhat can be problematic for, for a taxable investor, especially like a taxable investor with a high rate. That's a good point. Um, so in conclusion, in summary, I mean, we talked about how the 6040 is done historically, um, what types of environments it might struggle, the various different asset classes and, and different stock styles that someone might consider. They're trying to get a little bit more diversification outside just regular stocks and bonds. And then some of these other alternative strategies that, you know, investors could, could consider, you know, from my perspective, the conversation started, uh, pretty simple. And then it gets really complex really quickly as you kind of start to consider some of these and it, you know, it gets far outside, um, you know, something simple like the 60, 40, you're adding in other alternative strategies with different return sources, with diff different return streams. And I think, you know, the point about behavior is just a very important one. Anytime you're introducing anything different, you're going to look different than the market. You're going to look different than the 60-40. And so there's the behavioral gap, to your point, Jack, of what might happen if, you know, these type of alternatives detract from returns or sort of hurt the portfolio or detract from the, the portfolio if you're benchmarking to something like the 60-40. So that's just uh, something that, you know, we'll continue to drive home uh, in, in all our podcasts and all of our discussions. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, you know, we had we had Stephen Forster on the podcast who wrote In Search of the Perfect Portfolio. And, and we talked about the idea of the perfect portfolio. And the, and the conclusion of that was there is no perfect portfolio. And so we've talked about a bunch of different ways, you know, you can expand a stock and bond portfolio. We talked at the beginning about just sticking with stocks and bonds, you know, and then we got into really complex things. But there is no right answer to this. There's no right way to do this. It all comes down to the specific person. You know, behaviorally, how can you handle looking really different than the markets? What are your goals? You know, do you need these types of things to meet your goals? Like there's, there's so many things that are personal in this that there, there is no answer. There's no great, you know, perfect strategy of the ones we talk to. A lot of these things make sense. And, you know, when you, when you look at the raw numbers and you look at the pure long-term returns and risk-adjusted returns and stuff like that, you can make a really strong case that doing some of these things besides just owning stocks and bonds make a ton of sense. But again, it comes back to who you are, how you behave, because at the end of the day, the investor return is all that matters. All right, I'm going to go listen to some Weird Al Yankovic songs. So um, thanks, to, <laughs> thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.